0: In Genesis chapter 3 in the Scripture, we have the fall of mankind. And, of course, you know the story of Adam and Eve buying into Satan's lies. And, of course, that brought evil and the curse into the world through Satan. God then placed in the heart of every individual when he created them a conscience The purpose of the conscience is to tell us in any given activity whether it is right or whether it's wrong. It's the little red light on the dashboard of the heart that blinks on and off at a certain activity and says, don't do that. Don't do that. That's not right. Or the light stays off and you know that it's okay to proceed with the action. God put that conscience in us to restrain evil in society. Imagine what it would be like to live in a culture where nobody had a conscience. Anything they did was okay, and there never was any warnings that you might be going in the wrong direction. And then last week in the message, I taught on the idea that God created three institutions in society, There are many institutions in society, but only three of them are ordained of God. First of all, the family. That's God's first institution. Secondly, the government or the state. God gave the state authority to punish evil. And in fact, that is its primary purpose. Its primary purpose is not to do many of the things that our government is doing today, but in the Bible, the purpose of sin was, or the purpose of the government was to restrain sin, to hold back the tide of evil that could overwhelm any culture. And primarily, the government functions by the law enforcement function. The law enforcement function that punishes evildoers, and the, Romans 13 says, gives praise to those who do good. The third institution God ordains is the church, and the church proclaims the gospel. The church speaks truth, and in doing so, it trains people, and then that holds back the evil that would plague society. Now, last week, I used the illustration of the sea, and I pictured a storm at sea, and the winds are howling, and the waves are crashing into the shoreline, and the, uh, and it's just a turbulent scene, a great storm at the sea. But I also talked about that along the sea, men have learned to build seawalls. And the purpose of the seawall is to hold back the angry sea, to hold back the storm, to keep a flood from occurring and destroying the buildings and the houses and the things that we have built along the shore. And so we found a picture that sort of illustrates that. And were it not for that sea wall, that ocean would just keep impeding into the interior, and it would damage and destroy. Now, that picture to me illustrates these institutions, family, church, government, And we are the wall, along with the individual conscience and the Holy Spirit living within the believer. Those are all forces that hold back the evil that would intrude into culture. And the ocean is the picture of evil itself. And so God's seawall of protection against evil in any culture is the individual believer with a trained conscience, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and then the three institutions of family, church, and government. I spoke primarily last week about the government state, and I spoke about the church, how it restrains the evil. But today, I want to speak primarily about the family. And of course, this being Mother's Day, Uh, I wanted to do something that would help families, but I'm addressing my remarks not specifically to the mothers, but also to the fathers as well. If you're a parent, especially, I have designed this message with you in mind. And we began talking about the family with where the Bible begins talking about it. In fact, maybe a little bit before the family started. And in Genesis 1 and 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them, referring to the two sexes, men and women have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female. That's important in our world. That wouldn't even have drawn attention 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But right now, that is critically important. God created them male and female, two genders. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion or have rule over the fish and the fowl and everything that moveth upon the earth. This is called the dominion mandate. We have named this passage of Scripture. The dominion mandate, God commanding man to have dominion over his entire creation. And we know that from that time forward, God's emphasis has been upon the family From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, the family has been central to God's plan. Now, Eve had not even been created at this point, but God had in mind the family as the very fundamental building block of human civilization. You will notice in verse number 27 that God's plan for the family begins with a man and a woman male and female, and he made them differently, and he made them differently for a purpose. And so, the man and the woman are different physically. They're complementary. They're made to become one flesh. Then God made them different emotionally, and we know when we, all of us who are married, we discovered in our spouse, uh, different sex, that men and women behave differently in an emotional sense. Most of the time, there's there's certain qualities that women uh, tend to have more than men and, and vice versa. Emotionally, God made us to complement each other, that we need both sides of that e- uh, emotional equation to have a good marriage and family. And then God made us not only different physically and emotionally, but he made us different spiritually. And so we men have some qualities that generally speaking, women do not and vice versa. And it's because God didn't make us all alike. He made us different so that he might make us one. He made us different so that there could be unity and so there could be this one flesh relationship. Now, we read about that in chapter 2, verse 24. So there we read, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, leaving his birth parents, the family of his origin to use current terminology, and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And so God said, I want this to be a very special relationship. I don't have a one flesh relationship with anybody but one person in the world. Not my parents, not my brother or sister when she was alive not my children. I have one person in the world with whom I can have a one-flesh relationship, and that is my wife. And so God married them, in verse 24, in the garden wedding. And uh, he said, marriage now is intended to be a special relationship, a one-flesh relationship. That means that marriage is, first of all, monogamous. That's a big word, but we use it, and it's a good word. It means that uh, I have one partner for life. It's God's plan that marriage be one man and one woman for life, a permanent monogamous relationship. In Matthew chapter 19, the Lord is talking about this, the Lord Jesus himself, and he says regarding a marriage what God hath joined together, let not man put apart. Now, unless there are extreme circumstances, and the Bible gives us what those circumstances are, divorce should not even be on the horizon for Christian people. Christian people honor those commands right here. My marriage is one man one woman for life. We have problems, but if we'll follow the Bible very, very closely, we can work those problems out. Those problems can be resolved and we can live a happy life together. What was the purpose of marriage? What was the purpose of the family? Well, one, it was companionship. Go to chapter two and verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good that a man should be alone and I will make a help meet for him. And so, God's first stated purpose regarding marriage is companionship. It's not good that either of us be alone. And the second purpose God gave for marriage is reproduction. And we go back to verse 28 of chapter 1 be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, I want you to note that that's a command from God, that's not a suggestion. Because we live in a world today where because of birth control methods and technology and so on, people kind of have gotten this idea. You know, if, if we decide to, we're going to have some children. Well, the Bible says that children are the heritage of the Lord, and God commanded us, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Marriage is a command of God. Now, reason with me please come, come to the room, come to the pulpit here for a moment in your thought process. think with me. if God commanded something, that is a right for me to do that, is it not? If God commanded me to have children, that's a natural right. Our founders described unalienable rights, unalienable rights, meaning natural rights given to a human being by God that cannot be removed, cannot even be given away. My natural rights, I can't even delegate them to somebody else. I have a natural right, and I have a natural right to be married. I have a natural right to have children, to have a family, Now I'll show you in just a second why that is so important. You see, our founders, we often talk about the founders saying when they began our nation, they said, among the rights that uh, that we have that are God-given were uh, the right to life, to uh, liberty, and to the pursuit of happiness. But it also says there among these things are the right to life, liberty, and happiness. Among implying there are other natural rights. Don't think we only have three natural rights uh, because the Declaration of Independence says that. The Scripture says by inference that we have a whole lot of natural rights. And what are they? Well, among them, I have the right to marry I have the right to have a family. In fact, I'm commanded to have one if God so creates our bodies that we can reproduce a child. And why is that important? Because we've got governments in the world today that violate that. My daughter and Miles over here to my left were missionaries in China for 12 years. And I went there three times and visited with them and spent two or three weeks at a time. So I I, I became pretty well acquainted with Chinese culture. And back 25 years or so ago, the Chinese population was growing so quickly that these uh, geniuses up in Beijing said, well, we're going to slow down the population. We're going to adopt a one-child policy. And the one-child policy meant that a couple could only have one child in China. If the wife got pregnant for the second time, They would require her. That's right. I said require. They would require the woman to have an abortion. So there were millions of abortions going on in China just simply because the law said a family is limited to one child. Now, see, that's a a world we can hardly conceive of. But that policy lasted for, oh, probably 20 years or more in China. And then they had to do away with it. You know why they had to do away with it? Because there became so many boys because in the Asian culture, the male was so much more valued than the females that people were getting pregnant, finding out that they were carrying a little girl and they would have the baby aborted and try again for a boy. And in China, the male population was soaring and the female population was, was lagging. And it was all because the geniuses running the government thought they were smarter than God, huh? You know, God has a way of working that out and balancing the population up. And they began to cause them massive problems. You see, you don't want a lot of young men with high testosterone own levels running around in a culture with a broke, with a, with a, uh, a fallen nature. And so they had to undo the policy. They've had to they've had to rescind that that whole one child policy in China today. What they were doing Of course they don't believe the Bible. They were violating God's command. Have children. Let him work out the demographics. Be fruitful and multiply. And that's a natural right. And they were taking away the natural right of families. We also believe from this that once a child is conceived, they're a separate life. People say, no, it's just tissue in the mother's body. No, it's not. Now the science backs us up. The science says... If we check that baby's DNA, it won't be the same DNA as the mother had. So even the science is about to catch up with the Bible, and we find out that that baby is a separate life with the same right to live as the mother and the father have. The family, God started with it as the building block, the fundamental building block of civilization a male and a female complementing each other physically, emotionally, and spiritually in a one-flash monogamous and permanent relationship, one man, one woman for life, with the purpose of companionship and love and support for each other and reproduction, to reproduce the species, a natural, unalienable right that every human being was given by God in the very first chapter of the Bible. That's what Christians believe about family. Now, there are enemies of the family today. And in America, we're seeing an absolute all-out assault on the family. So much so that uh, I serve with an organization called the Palmetto Family Council And it's an activist organization. We advocate for families. If legislation or practices in culture affect the family, we want to do everything we can to keep a biblical model of family healthy and thriving in the state of South Carolina. Because, as I said, family, the foundational building block of any society in any culture, but we're seeing it attacked today. It's being attacked in ways that sometimes we don't even recognize. For example, beginning back in the 50s or so, we began to liberalize abortion, or, uh, pardon me, divorce laws. And we began to make it much easier for people to obtain a divorce. Now, sometimes divorce is permitted scripturally. There are two or three different things in the Bible where it says, except for this cause, except for this reason, there are circumstances and conditions under which God accepts a divorce action. But we we liberalize divorce laws to where now, for example, in the state of South Carolina, all you have to do is move out and not see each other for a year. And if you don't live together within one year, you just get an automatic divorce. We made it real easy. Now, I don't have time to get into the gritty details of all this, but here's here's what that did. When we make it very easy to, to obtain a divorce, what we're doing is we're diminishing the sacredness of the marriage vow. When we make divorce easy in a culture, we diminish the sacredness of it. In previous generations, and the Bible teaches, your marriage is a a sacred, sacred relationship. It must not ever be broken or abrogated in any way. In fact, one of the reasons that God gave us for a divorce action is that there was adultery involved. Somebody broke the vows of marriage. And why did he do that? Because it's a sacred vow. It's the most sacred vow you'll ever make. When you stand... And pledge your love and, 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 and your fealty to each other as a man and a woman, it is the single most sacred statement moment of your entire life. And we've diminished that by making it continually easier to break out of the marriage relationship. And then the second assault on the family began in the 60s. It was the sexual revolution, the Playboy philosophy, and what the Playboy philosophy—the idea that that you can have sex before marriage and it's acceptable, or sex outside of your marriage relationship, even then, and that it's acceptable—that sexual revolution that was promulgated and publicized across the country and accepted even by the governmental agencies and especially by the educational institutions. That sexual revolution stripped sex of any moral connotation, whatever. That having sex was no longer a breaking of God's law because everybody accepted it. And when I was in the University of South Carolina as a student in the early and mid-1960s, I remember the cool thing in the dorm was to get a copy of the Playboy magazine and read you, you would read The Playboy Philosophy, written by none other than Hugh Hefner and himself. And he ridiculed and mocked and made fun of people who believed marriage was sacred, that sex was a sacred thing that ought to be delayed. Sexual activity should not be engaged in outside of marriage. He just thought that was the funniest thing in the world. And he stripped it of all of its moral connotations, that having sex is almost recreation. Almost recreational, that having sex was was normal. God gave you those impulses, so go ahead and live out those impulses. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a bunch of old prudish Baptist preachers that uh, believe that stuff. And because of that, we made sex outside of marriage acceptable, even expected. We have parents that go to the pharmacy now and order the birth control pills for their for their daughter. Well, that's a powerful message, is it not? Hey, by the way, that's pretty commonplace. I thought they'd get one amen. In our culture today, virginity is ridicule. Fornication has become recreation. And that's an assault on our family. There's the feminist movement, a philosophy that came in the 60s and 70s. It says that men are the oppressors, and Gloria Steinham, Bella Asberg, and some of those early pioneers of feminism, they taught that men are not even necessary now, that with sperm banks, we don't need men, you don't need to get married, and they taught the virtues of women living alone and having children, but never having a man involved in the, in the family. And now today we face new threats coming from every side. The entire leftist agenda is anti-family right now. And if you're trying to raise a God-fearing family and children, boy, well, I'm going to tell you, I don't want to discourage you, but the deck is stacked against you. Everything in this culture is tearing away at that. I read to you in her own words, from Patrice Cooler, who is the founder of the Black Lives Matter. It was on her website until a few months ago, and then, interestingly, it disappeared because it was getting so much criticism. But I'm quoting from her statement. Our goal is to disrupt, I'm quoting, the Western-prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children. Now, that's just liberal word speak. And let me give you a brief interpretation of it. She says, our goal is to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family, the nuclear family, the nucleus of the family, mom and dad, and then children. I want to tell her that's not Western prescribed, that's biblically prescribed, beginning right here in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then she says, we want to disrupt that nuclear family structure and support each other as extended families and villages. You know, it takes a village to raise a child. You you remember all that stuff. And uh, she goes on and on. It's, it's a recipe for pure Socialism, that we dissolve the family, and that the culture, the society, the community raises the kids. Anna Wintour is the editor of Vogue magazine. A few years ago, she was having a baby, and she said, having a baby is pure, quote, environmental Vandalism. <laughs> she worried about the strain of another baby on the planet. (laughs) Y'all don't have a sense of humor. I think that's hilarious. I think that is uh, insanity. That woman's bumping her head on a wall somewhere by now. She worries about the strain of one more baby on the planet. (laughs) And get this, she wants to raise her baby with an awareness of ecological equality. (laughs) What does that mean? You just shake your head. Welcome to the country that used to be called America, now called the land of insanity. <laughs> well, I'll try my humor somewhere else. This week, Representative, <clears throat> pardon me, this week, Representative Cory Bush of Missouri, serving on the House Oversight Committee, referred to mothers as birthing people. And she's being praised by the left in the media for her, quote, inclusive, nonspecific gender language, end quote. I can't even interpret this. You know, don't try to make sense out of something that's nonsensible. First rule of good preaching, huh? In 1984, George Orwell wrote his novel, by the same name. Listen, he pointed out that when definitions are ever-changing, words become meaningless. When the definitions are always changing, then the meanings, the words become meaningless. And he went on further, and he talked about that they can become whatever the ministry of truth. He was referring to a governmental agency in that fictitious work. A group of people who defined what is truth and what is not. And he said, when the definitions are ever-changing, words become meaningless, and they can become whatever the ministry of truth wants them to be. We're living that, folks. Folks. You know, I I, I sometimes ask myself, are they getting tired of me talking about this stuff? But here's the thing. We're watching our families and our culture melt down. The only hope we have is to understand God's truth about it. You're not going to hear this on CNN. You're not going to hear this on Fox. You're only going to hear this from God's Word. And I'm trying, I, hope, I want you to understand, I'm trying to equip you to live in this insanity. I'm, I'm trying to help you and encourage you and instruct so that when you hear what's happening in this culture, you're, you're equipped intellectually to deal with it. And when the family's broken, God's most important restraint against sin is torn down. And so today we've got millions and millions and millions of children roaming our streets, and they're never taught anything about the Bible. They're not taught even basic right and wrong, morality. And it's so tragic. Broken homes, broken people, broken hearts. In some ways, we're just as ignorant of God's plan as were the Chinese with their one-child policy. Now we're trying all these social experiments, and most of them are unscriptural, and anti-family, and anti-American and anti-God. You take all the statistics, violent crime. Kids coming out of broken homes, way higher rates. Drug use. Kids out of broken homes, much higher. Poverty in adulthood. Kids out of broken homes, less chance to prosper. Incarceration levels, dropouts. One obvious factor that I'll be clear to everybody in the whole country, I don't know why I didn't, that if you raise a child in a two-parent home, With biblical principles, you've given that chance a big push towards success down the road of life. And so my conclusion is that families training children in righteous living are God's greatest weapons against evil in our culture. Families training children in righteous living are God's greatest weapon against evil against, uh, to to overcome evil in the culture. You know from repetition and from your memory, Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6, where it says, if you train up a child in the way he will go, he will not depart from it. Now, there are exceptions to that. I know Proverbs is a book of principles. It's not a book of, it doesn't speak to every individual case. But the general principle is, if we train a child in the way they should go, At some point, they're going to come back to those principles, even if they go astray. And we know that children have a very sinful nature, that that little tiny baby that we hold and coo over is so sweet and we could just love until the day ends, that little child that we love so much, but later that child's going to demonstrate a, a sinful nature, rebellion, disobedience, and all the sins that would accompany even a little child. And in your Bible, I want you to turn. I want you to see some scriptures because I think they're so important and it's so relevant to what is happening today. Proverbs chapter number 17 in your Bible. Chapter 17 and verse 25. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her that bare him or the mother. A foolish son, one who won't listen to the instruction of God, one who chooses to, to close his eyes to wisdom mentioned in the previous verse. A foolish son is a grief to his father and a bitterness to his mother, a broken heart, in other words. Chapter 19 and verse 13, a foolish son is the calamity of his father. Man, strong words. Think of those words. Here's a little child, but if he is not trained in the ways of God, he's a calamity. He's a catastrophe. He's a wreck waiting to happen. So says the Word of God. So your role as a parent today, fathers and mothers both, is discipline. Two kinds of discipline, to discipline the heart and the emotions of that child. Positive discipline, first of all, which positive di- discipline, what, I, what do I mean? Let me define that term. Positive discipline is training your child in righteousness, in moral values, if you will, in spiritual truth, and yet you as the parent don't depend on the preacher and don't depend on the Sunday school, but you as parent, Train that child. It is your first responsibility, as well as the church's, of course. Go with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. It's familiar. It's called the Shema. The Shema is the passage of Scripture that God gave to the Jews, and he said, I want you to repeat it every single day of your life. And it was so such an important thing, they gave it a name, Shema. And it begins in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, that's all there is to the Shema. It's a little simple statement. You're to love God with all your heart, soul, and might. And every morning, hear me now, parents, every, every single day of life, the Father was to sit down and say that with the children repetitively every single day and throughout the day that was to be said over and over and over, ingraining it as deeply as possible into the minds of those little children. And then notice he doesn't stop there. I command you to teach these words, to keep them in your heart. And in verse 7, teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house. The the conversation of the Christian home ought to deal with spiritual things. We're talking about the Lord, our God. Are we loving him with all of our heart, soul, and mind? Talk of them in the house. And when you go out and take a walk in the evening or you're traveling somewhere in the car, and when you lie down at night, and when you get up in the morning, we're talking about loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, putting him first in our lives. And he continues, bind them for a sign upon your hand that they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. A frontlet was a little box. It was about as big, not even as big as a matchbox. And the frontlet was a little box with a string on it, and they wrapped it around their head, the devout Jews, like a headband. And in it, they took, Verse number five, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And they printed it out, and they put it in the little box, and they wore it on their head so it would be an all-day-long reminder to them of their, their duty to God. And then if you go to Israel today or to New, York, to New York or San Francisco where there's a lot of Orthodox Jews, you'll see people that have a little box, that same little box that's tied on their arm or they'll wear it sometimes on their wrist. And it reminds them all day long that they're to love God with all their heart, their soul, and their mind. And then he says, write it upon the doorpost of your house. Keep it before you. All the time, and you've, if you go visit an Orthodox Jewish home, you'll probably see a little box tied around the doorpost on the front porch, and it has in it the Shema. Now we don't practice the Shema; it's Old Testament, and, and in some ways, it's not what we we uh, th- think ought to be the emphasis. So, what do? How do we do the same thing as the Shema? I have a little book in my hand here, and we have copies of it up there in the bookstore. It's called The Daily Light on the Daily Path. Last night, I laid it on a pillow and took a picture of it because I knew you couldn't see this book. It's about 70-some years old. My mom and dad bought this when I was a little tiny boy. And if you'll open it up, it has two readings every day in it. And they're not prayers, and they're not sermons, and they're not cute little stories. They're pure Scripture. They take a group of Scriptures about a certain topic and they string them together just like in phrases, like, I've, I've opened mine here, and uh, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. Everyone changes to another verse. Everyone that's proud in the heart is an abomination to the Lord. And you just go on. You can read either the page in about three minutes. I'm gonna say two minutes. And if you read that page... In two minutes, if you read it in the morning and read it in the evening, you will ingrain into the minds of your children scriptures they'll never forget. You don't need to prepare a Bible study. They get enough Bible studies right here. You don't need a Bible study every day, but you need a reminder every day of what God said and God's truth. Now, you can buy a copy of that in our bookstore. We, we've we got 16 or 18 copies. Do you know what? That's a treasure. Do you know what? If you offered me $2,000 for that today, I would not let you have it. That's been stained by the hands of my mother and my daddy. And we read through that every single year. It was laying on daddy's plate and he would either read from it or he would hand it and say, Billy, you read it. Paul, you read it. Jimmy, you read it. Ann, you read it. Hallie, you read it. And somebody read that before we could eat breakfast. And somebody read it before we could eat dinner. And when I stand here and quote Scripture, most of it I learned before I ever. I learned it right there. So I treasure that little book. Won't you buy you one? They're a little bigger now. And read it every day of your life and every day of your marriage and every day of your family. and ingrain the principles of God's word in your hearts. If you don't have children, still be I mean, unless you have moved on to perfection, you need it too. And there's nothing draws the family together, like unifying around God's truth. Now, if you don't want to buy one, there's a website, and just put in your browser, after church, not right now. After church, put in your browser, daily light on the daily path, and it'll come up on your phone, and I have it on my phone. And if I don't read it in the morning, even today, I read it in the on my phone. And the daily light on the daily path website, it's free. That'll really go well with many of you. So the point being the New Testament version of the Shema, I've just given you a plan for it, to get God's Word into your life and your heart and into the life and heart of your children every single day. But then discipline also has to be negative. And I want you to turn again to the book of Proverbs. And in the book of Proverbs, I'm just going to read to you chapter 13. You won't hear this read much in churches today. <laughs> Some people would call this child abuse. Let me tell you the Bible never condones child abuse, not beating up a child. But it uses these old English words like rod and beat, and so people just freak out when you talk about it. But here's what the Bible says about negative discipline, the correction of children. 1324. He that spareth the rod hateth his son. But he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Chapter nineteen, verse eighteen: Chasten thy son while there's hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. Twenty-two, fifteen: Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child; the rod of correction. Don't don't. That's not a baseball bat. That's a little switch, a little tender switch off the tree, which my mother used and I hated. Norma interpreted that as a flyswatt. My daddy interpreted that as a belt. So the rod of correction can be many, you know, it's it's just some instrument that you use. Don't use your hand. And if you use that, it'll drive foolishness from the heart of a child. And then chapter 23 and verse 15 my son uh, 13 withhold not correction from the child if you beat him see there are people freak out on that if you spank him with the rod he'll not die and thou shalt spank him with the rod and he'll deliver and you'll deliver his soul from hell 29 and 15 I want you to see how often it talks about it the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself will bring his mother to shame. And seventeen, correct thy son, and he'll give you rest and lay and yea, he will give delight to your soul. It's not talking about child abuse, but it's talking about a little pain in the rear temporarily. Well associate in that child's mind that wrongdoing has consequences, and better a little temporary pain as a child than a lifetime of suffering because of evildoing, sowing and reaping. So, you want your children to have a good life. Teach them to listen to their conscience. You train their conscience so their conscience will be accurate Train them in the ways of the Lord. Do it every single day. Be consistent. And when you do, you have put into our culture, into your street, into your family, into your circle of influence, the single greatest restrainer of evil that there is, a family who's holding back the evil of culture because they're rearing their children in the fear of the Lord. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, and bow your heads, please.